evidences of regeneration. Finally, concerning all these things, we should carefully ask whether we take delight in such a life as this, and that notwithstanding all the opposition, ridicule, and contempt of the world, among the different acts or kinds of obedience, also particular attention is due to those which involve peculiar self-denial. When the avaricious man becomes generous and charitable, the ambitious man contented with his circumstances, the proud man humbled, the wrathful man meek, the revengeful man forgiving, and the sensualist sober, chaste, and temperate, in a word, when we drop our reigning sins and assume the contrary virtues of set and cordial purpose, we are furnished with strong reasons to believe that we are Christians. Sixthly, the increase of all these things in the mind and life is perhaps the clearest of all the evidences of personal religion. Paul informs us that he did not count himself to have apprehended. That is, he did not consider himself as having attained that degree of excellence which belonged to his Christian profession. But, saith he, this one thing I do, or perhaps is the omission in the text is supplied by Doddridge, this one thing I can say, forgetting the things which are behind and reaching forth to those things which are before, in the Greek reaching out eagerly, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What was the conduct of Paul in the duty of all Christians, and is accordingly enjoined by him in the following verse? In greater or less degrees, it is their conduct also. They are directed so to run that they may obtain and to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, to increase and abound in love one towards another and towards all men. As it is the duty of Christians to fulfill these precepts, so it is the nature of Christianity to accord with them by increasing from time to time their strength and vigor. The more the spirit of the gospel is exercised, the more we love to exercise it. The more the pleasure found in it is enjoyed, the more it is coveted. The more habitual its principles and practices become, the greater is the strength which they acquire. Indeed, nothing is vigorous and powerful in man besides that which is habitual. Hence it is plain that investigating our religious character, we should examine it with a particular reference to its growth. To grow is its proper nature. If it is not seen to grow, then we either do not see it as it is, or it does not exist in us, and its genuine character, but is feeble, fading, sickly, clogged with encumbrances, and in a great measure hidden from view. Man is never for any length of time stationary. Either he is advancing or receding, and everything which pertains to him, and in religion as truly as in his natural endowments or acquisitions. Declension in religion, I need not say, furnishes a melancholy evidence that we are not religious. It is no less obvious that a regular progress in its various graces and attainments must, on the contrary, become a clear and delightful testimony of our Christian character. There is not only more of religion to be seen in ourselves, but it is discerned with clear conviction and certainty to be genuine, because it appears as real religion naturally appears in its own proper character of growth and improvement. He who loves, fears, and serves God more and more, who is more and more just, sincere, 
and merciful to his fellow men, and who is more and more self-governed in all his appetites and passions, weaned from the world and spiritually and heavenly minded, cannot lack the best reasons furnished in our present state to believe that he is a child of God. The Evidences of Regeneration Difficulties Attending The Application of These Evidences to Ourselves In the last discourse but one, I propose from these words to examine first some of the imaginary evidences of regeneration, secondly, some of the real evidences, and thirdly, some of the difficulties which attend the application of the real evidences to ourselves. There has been much debate in the Christian world concerning the faith of assurance, or as it is in better language style by Paul, the full assurance of hope. The question debated has, however, not been whether men felt assured that they were Christians, but whether this assurance has been evangelical or built on satisfactory and scriptural evidence. That such a faith has existed I have no doubt, nor do I see how it can be rationally doubted. That the apostles were evangelically assured of their own piety and consequent salvation must be admitted by all who believe the scriptures. I have fought a good fight, says Paul. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. We know, says John, that we have passed from death unto life. From the accounts given us concerning the first martyrs, I think we cannot hesitate to admit that they also were the subjects of the same faith. Nor is the evidence concerning a number of those who have lived and suffered in modern times less convincing to me. These men have, in various instances, lived in a manner eminently evangelical, have devoted themselves through a long period to the service of God with so much humility, self-denial, uniformity, steadfastness, and evangelical zeal, have labored for the good of their fellow creatures with so much disinterestedness, charity, and constancy, have lived so much above the world, and with a conversation so heavenly, that when they are declaring themselves possessed of this faith, and have died with peace and exaltation, which must be supposed to result from it, we cannot, unless by willful rejection of evidence, hesitate to admit that they were possessed of this inviolable attainment." Indeed, I can hardly doubt that any man who reads their history with candor will readily admit the doctrine so far as the men to whom I refer are concerned. But if these things be admitted, it will probably be readily conceded that there are in every country and in every age where Christianity prevails some persons who enjoy the faith or hope of assurance. At the same time, I am fully persuaded that the number of these persons is not very great. If the Christians and ministers with whom I have had opportunity to converse, many of whom have been eminently exemplary in their lives, may be allowed to stand as representatives of Christians in general, it must certainly be true that the faith of assurance is not common. 
Indeed, I am persuaded that this blessing is much more frequently experienced in times and places of affliction and persecution than in seasons of peace and prosperity. Severe trials and sufferings furnish of themselves clearer proofs of the piety of those who are tried than can ordinarily be furnished by circumstances of ease and quiet. The faith which will patiently submit, which will encounter, which will endure, which will overcome in periods of great affliction, has in this very process both acquired and exhibited peculiar strength, and furnish evidence of its genuineness which can hardly be derived from any other source. At the same time it is, I think, irresistibly inferred from the declarations contained in the word of God, and from the history of his providence, recorded both within and without the scriptures, that God, in his infinite mercy, furnishes his children with peculiar support and consolations in times of peculiar trial, and that as their day is, so he causes their strength to be. Among the means of consolation enjoyed by Christians, none seems better adapted to furnish them with the necessary support under severe distresses than an assurance that they are children of God. Accordingly, this very consolation appears to have been given to the suffering saints of the Old and New Testament as a peculiar support to them in their peculiar trials. From analogy, it might be concluded and from the history of facts that may with the strongest probability, if not with absolute certainty, be determined, that the same blessing has been given in times of imminent affliction to saints in every succeeding age of the church. Still, there is no reason to think that the faith of assurance is generally attained among eminent Christians. This fact has sometimes been called in question, sometimes denied, and oftener wondered at. Why, it is inquired, are not Christians oftener, nay, why are they not generally assured of their gracious state? There certainly is a difference between sin and holiness, sufficiently broad to be seen and marked. The scriptures have actually marked this difference with such clearness and exactness as to give us ample information concerning both the nature and the limits of these great moral attributes. They have separated those who possess them into two classes, not only entirely distinct, but directly opposite to each other. So opposite that the one class is styled in them, the friends and the other, the enemies of God. Further, they present to us various means of judging by which we are directed as well as encouraged and enabled to try and estimate our own religious character. The subject is also so spoken of in the scriptures as naturally to lead us into the conclusion that these different characters may be distinctly known and that it is our duty so to act as upon the whole to form satisfactory views concerning our moral condition. Finally, the writers of the New Testament, and indeed of the Old also, speak of themselves as knowing their own piety, and of others as able to know theirs. To these observations I answer in the first place that holiness and sin are in themselves thus clearly distinguishable. Angels cannot but know that they are holy, and sins that they are sinful. Secondly, this difference is sufficiently marked in the scriptures. If we saw holiness in ourselves exactly as it is exhibited in the scriptures, that is unmixed, we should certainly know ourselves to be holy. Thirdly, holy and sinful men are just as different from each other as they are represented in the scriptures, but this does not enable us to determine which they are. 
Fourthly, the means furnished us in the scriptures of judging concerning our religious character are undoubtedly the best, which the nature of our circumstances will admit, and such as, if correctly applied to ourselves and known to be thus applied, would undoubtedly decide this great point in a satisfactory manner. Still, this does not infer that it usually will or can be thus decided. Fifthly, we are undoubtedly required in the Scriptures to examine ourselves, and the performance of this duty, while it is indispensable on our part, unquestionably may be and is of great importance to us, although we may not, as a consequence of it, become possessed of the faith of assurance. Sixthly, the writers in the Old Testament did, in many instances, certainly know that they were holy, but they were inspired. It will not therefore follow that others who are uninspired will, of course, possess the same knowledge of their own state. Seventhly, the scriptural writers very extensively use the words know and knowledge, not in the sense of absolute science, but to denote belief, persuasion, a strong hope, and so on, in the same manner as these terms are used in common speech. We cannot, therefore, certainly conclude from the use of these terms with respect to this subject that the divine writers expected those to whom they wrote generally to possess a faith of assurance. Finally, it is our duty to possess this faith. It is also our duty to be perfect. Yet John says of himself and all other Christians, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. As therefore, notwithstanding this duty, no man is perfect, so notwithstanding the duty of obtaining the faith of assurance, few persons may actually possess it. The real difficulty is chiefly passed by in all the observations made above, and lies in applying the scriptural evidences of holiness to our own particular cases. This subject I shall now attempt to examine in several particulars. The difficulties which attend the application of these evidences to ourselves arise from various sources. Among them, the following will be found to possess a very serious influence. First, the vast importance of the case. A case of great moment is, at all times, apt strongly to agitate our minds. Men deeply interested by any concern are therefore considered as less capable of discerning clearly and judging justly than the same men when dispassionate. As this is the subject even of proverbial declaration, it cannot need proof. The case in hand is of infinite moment to each individual. Whenever he brings it to view, he is prone to feel a degree, and often not a small one, of anxiety. It is therefore seen, together with the evidences which attend it, by the mind through the medium of disturbed feelings. Ernest wishes to find satisfaction on the one hand, and strong apprehensions, lest it should not be found on the other, naturally disorder that calm temperament which is so necessary to clear investigation and satisfactory conclusions. In this state, the mind is prone to be unsatisfied with its own investigation, fears that it has not acted impartially, suspects that it has not viewed the evidence, possessed by it, in a just light, and when its judgments are faithful, Favorable to itself is prone to tremble lest they have been too favorable, and the result of biased inclinations rather than of clear discernment. A presumptuous decision in its favor.
it perfectly well knows to be full of danger and is ready to think almost every favorable judgment presumptuous. In this situation, all such judgments are out to be regarded with a general suspicion, and the mind chooses rather to continue unsatisfied and to undergo the distresses of anxiety and alarm than to hazard the danger of ill-founded conclusions in its own favor. Most Christians are, I believe, so strongly convinced that a state of anxiety will contribute to make them alive and awake to the danger of backsliding, to quicken them in their duty, and to secure them from carelessness and sloth, and that therefore it will have a happy influence toward rendering them safe, is willingly to judge too unfavorably rather than too favorably of their own religious character. An unfavorable judgment, they know, does not render the character itself any worse, but only deprives them of the consolation, which, with more favorable views of it, they might enjoy. While the contrary opinion might naturally slacken them in their duty, and perhaps prevent them finally from obtaining salvation. Secondly, another source of difficulty is found in the peculiar natural character of those who are employed in this investigation. Some of these persons are naturally inclined to hope, others to fear, some to cheerfulness, others to melancholy, some are rash, Others are cautious, some are ignorant, others are well informed. But the evidences which establish or should establish a favorable judgment of our Christian character are in substance always the same. As applied to persons of these different characters, they must, however, be seen in very different lights. Because, although religion is the same thing, yet so much of the peculiar natural character of the man remains, after he has become religious, as to render him a very different man from every other religious man. Paul and John were both eminently religious. Their religion was the same thing, but the men were widely different from each other. If, if Christians so eminent and excellent could differ in this manner, how much more different from each other must be ordinary Christians? How much more must the natural traits of character remain in them, particularly such as, in a greater or less degree, are sinful? The whole object, therefore, presented to the judgment of the individual, must differ and often greatly in different cases. For example, one person becomes a subject of piety after a wise, careful religious education, early and uninterrupted habits of conscientiousness, in the possession of a naturally sweet and amiable temper, in an original and regular course of filial duty, fraternal kindness, and exemplary conduct to those around him, and in the midst of a life generally commendable and lovely. Another, scarcely educated at all, possessed of a rough, gross, and violent disposition, and shamefully vicious from early life, is sanctified in the midst of scandalous indulgencies and rank habits of sin. It is perfectly obvious that these two persons will differ mightily from each other in the visible degree of that change of conduct which flows from their religion. The former will perhaps be scarcely changed at all even to an observing eye, for he has heretofore done, and in a certain sense loved to do, in many particulars, the very things which religion requires and to which it prompts. 
and thus the tenor of his life will seem to those around him much the same after as before his conversion. The latter, sanctified in the same degree, will, it is plain, change almost the whole course of his conduct, and assume a life entirely new and directly opposite to that which he led before. Nor will the difference be small in the internal state of these individuals. The sanctified affections and purposes of the former will, in many instances, so blend themselves with those which he has derived from nature and habit, as to be often distinguished with difficulty, and not unfrequently to be entirely undistinguishable. Those of the latter, on the contrary, will be wholly opposite, in most instances, to all that he has heretofore thought, felt, and designed. As the internal and external conduct of these individuals is the sole ground on which each must judge of himself as well as be judged of by others, it is perfectly obvious that the objects concerning which they are respectively to judge are widely different from each other. But this is not all. The optics with which these persons judge concerning their religious state will plainly be widely different. Our dispositions naturally influence our judgment and usually enter much more largely into the opinion which we form than we are aware. Thus a person strongly inclined to hope will almost, of course, judge favorably, when a person equally inclined to fear would in the very same case judge unfavorably concerning himself. Cheerful persons naturally entertain comfortable views concerning themselves, those who are melancholy such, and often such only, as are uncomfortable, discouraging, and distressing. The rash form bold and presumptuous opinions without hesitation, the cautious admit opinions favorable to themselves slowly, even when they are admitted upon acknowledged evidence. The ignorant must be very imperfectly fitted to consider the various means of evidence, all of which ought to be consulted, in forming our opinions concerning this important subject, while the enlightened Christian must be much more competent to draw up a well-founded determination. Thirdly, the similar nature of those which we call natural views and affections to those which are evangelical furnishes another source of these difficulties. Love and hatred, hope and fear, joy and sorrow, confidence and shame, together with various other affections and views of the mind really exist, and operate in the Christian as natural views and affections and not merely evangelical. The objects which excite these affections in both senses are often the same. The emotions themselves are also so much alike as perceived by the mind that mankind universally, and the scriptural writers as well as others, call them by the same names. When both are described by those who are the subjects of them, the description to a great extent is commonly the same. It will, therefore, be easily believed that they are so similar in their nature as when they arise from the same objects to render it difficult for the Christian in whom they exist, and at times impossible to distinguish them from each other. It will be also easily seen that when he who is not a Christian has these affections and views excited in his mind by the objects, which excite the corresponding evangelical affections in the mind of a Christian, he may in many instances find it very difficult to discern that they are not evangelical. To illustrate this subject clearly, to the view of my audience, I will consider it more particularly. A Christian loves God, his Son, his Spirit, his Law, his Gospel, his Sabbath, his worship, and his children. 
Why does he love them? For two reasons. One is, their nature is agreeable to the relish of his mind. The other is, they are useful and therefore pleasing to himself. For both these reasons, he is bound to love them. But when he regards all these objects with this affection, it will be often difficult and sometimes impossible for him to determine whether his emotions are merely natural, wholly evangelical, or mixed. He knows that he exercises a love to God, but may be unable to determine whether he loves a character of God considered by himself, whether he loves the divine perfections for what they are, or whether he loves God because he regards him as a friend to himself and delights in his perfections, because he considers him as engaged and operating to promote his present and eternal good. It would be difficult for most persons to determine precisely what views they would form of this glorious being if it were revealed to him that he was their enemy. As it is often difficult for the Christian to distinguish his natural affections, which so long as he is a man, he will always continue to exercise, from the corresponding evangelical ones, which he exercises as a Christian, so it must evidently be more difficult for an unrenewed man who has never had any other beside natural affections to discern that these are not evangelical. When he loves God and other divine objects, in what manner shall he determine that he loves him? only because he believes him reconciled to himself? When he delights in the divine perfections, it will not be easy for him to see that it is only because he supposes them to be engaged to promote his welfare. When he loves the scriptures, it will be difficult for him to perceive that it is only because of their sublimity and beauty, the good sense which they contain, the happy influence, which they have on mankind, and the comforting promises which he considers them as speaking to himself. When he loves Christians, it will often be beyond his power to determine that it is not because of their natural amiableness of character, the agreeableness of their manners, their friendship or kind offices to himself, and their general usefulness to others with whom he is connected. A person is quiet under provocations. This may arise from meekness, it may also arise from a sense of the wisdom, the dignity, and the usefulness of the Spirit. He is kind to enemies. This may arise from the desire of obtaining the peculiar evidence that he is a good man, furnished by this exercise of Christian benevolence, from a sense of the nobleness of forgiveness, or from the danger of not finding himself forgiven. I might extend this course of thought through all the objects of self-examination and show that similar difficulties attend them all. Every Christian must, I think, have experienced them in his own case, and every person accustomed to converse much with others on the ground of their hope concerning themselves must have perceived them continually occurring in the progress of every such conversation. Fourthly, another source of this difficulty is found in the transient nature of all our emotions. By this I intend that every exercise of our affections has only a momentary existence in the mind. It rises, is indulged, and is gone. All our knowledge of its nature in the meantime exists in the consciousness of it, while it is passing, in our remembrance of that consciousness known to be imperfect, and in our acquaintance with its effects often of a character more or less doubtful. 
Few words can be necessary to show that our knowledge of these exercises gained in this manner must be attended by many imperfections. Our opportunity for viewing it while it is passing is so short and often so carelessly employed. Our remembrance of it when it is past is so far removed from certain accuracy, and its effects may be so easily and for aught that appears so justly attributed to various causes, that the whole view taken of them by the mind will frequently be obscure and its decision unsatisfactory. Hence appears the wisdom of fastening upon a course of such exercises is furnishing far better means of determining our religious character rather than resting it upon a few. A character may be successfully discerned in many exercises of a similar kind, which usually we shall attempt in vain to discover to our satisfaction in a small number. A thousand blades of grass will in the spring give a green and living aspect to that field which with a hundred would still retain the russet appearance of absolute death. Fifthly, another fruitful source of the same difficulties is furnished by the imperfect state of religion in the mind. This, indeed, may in an extensive sense be considered as the general source of them all. I have heretofore observed that angels cannot but know that they are holy, and fins that they are sinful. Were we perfectly holy, then, we should certainly know this to be our character. But there are particular difficulties attending this subject which deserve to be marked. The mind of every Christian experiences many alterations of holiness and sin. Temptations often and unexpectedly intrude. The objects which engross the whole heart of the sinner unhappily engage at times in greater or less degrees that of the Christian. Nor is their influence always transient. David, Solomon, and other saints mention in the scripture sin for a length of time. Not a small number of sins are committed in thought, word, and action in the brighter and better seasons, nay, in the brightest and best. I sin, says Bishop Beveridge. I repent of my sins and sin in my repentance. I pray for forgiveness and sin in my prayers. I resolve against my future sin and sin in forming my resolutions, so that I may say my whole life is almost a continued course of sin. This is the language of one of the best men that ever lived. A still better man has said, The good that I would, that I do not. But the evil that I would not, that I do. I find in a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. After the inward man, I delight in the law of God. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Now the whole life, not of such men as these, but of men who, though generally of a similar character, are greatly inferior to these in religious excellence, is almost always the real object of a Christian's examination. This also is to be continually examined, the worst and the best parts alike.
but it is plain that the comfortable evidence of our piety, furnished by the prevalence of holiness in the best seasons, will be always impaired by contrary evidence in periods of declension, will sometimes be rendered obscure and at others overbalanced. It is further evident that as our whole judgment will and ought to be usually made up, partly of the evidence furnished by our present state, and partly by our past judgments, and the evidence on which they were founded, evidence contradicting, impairing, and obscuring each other, a degree of confusion and uncertainty in the views of the mind concerning its religious character, will almost necessarily result in many instances from this complicated and perplexed state of things. Sixthly, no small difficulties are often thrown in our way by the backslidings of others. Many persons who are really Christians decline at times from holiness of life so greatly and so long as to excite not only the sneers and contempt, but the just censors also of those who are not Christians, and the extreme regret in the Christian discipline of those who are. Other men in cases of this nature frequently question or deny the very existence of religion. Christians do not indeed go with unwarrantable length, but they cannot avoid recollecting that frequently the persons who have thus declined were, in their view, better than themselves, and feeling the hopes which they have entertained of their own piety greatly lessened. They are compelled to doubt of the religion of these men and almost irresistibly question the reality of their own. There are other persons who strongly believe themselves to be religious and who at the same time live in such a manner as to persuade others that they are eminent Christians, who afterwards prove by their conduct that they are not Christians. Judas, Hymenaeus, Philetus, and others were of this character, and multitudes more in every succeeding age. When these persons fall, all the evidence which convinced either themselves or others of their piety is plainly proved to be unsolid, and we are naturally led to ask whether the evidence on which we have relied is a foundation of our own hope, be not the very same, or if it is known to be different, whether we have reason to think it at all better. In this way, we naturally come to suspect the grounds on which the belief of our piety has rested, and to doubt whether we are not equally deceived with them. Seventhly, I am of opinion that God, for wise and good reasons, administers His spiritual providence in such a manner as to leave His children destitute of the faith of assurance for their own good. This opinion, I am well aware, will most probably be doubted, although I entertain not a doubt of it myself. It is proper, therefore, that I should mention some reasons which induce me to adopt it. First, it is perfectly plain that the evidence enjoyed by Christians concerning their piety is in no regular manner or degree proportioned to their real excellence of character. The proof of this position is complete, both from our own observation and from the history of experimental and practical religion given us in the lives of great multitudes of eminently good men. Such men, after having enjoyed for a long time the most consoling evidence of their good estate, have, through periods also long, been distressed with doubts and darkness, and sometimes with deep despondence, and have nevertheless afterwards obtained the same consolations throughout their remaining lives. To such seasons the psalmist plainly alludes in many declarations, descriptions, and prayers. 
years. These are the seasons in which he speaks of God as hiding his face from him, and of himself as disquieted, troubled, sorrowful, mourning, is almost gone, is having his feet in the miry pit, and is overwhelmed by the billows of affliction. Such seasons are also familiarly spoken of by Christians as times of darkness and sorrow in which the light of God's countenance is hidden from them. Secondly, there is not, I believe, a single promise in the gospel to Christians as such of the faith of assurance, nor any direct intimation that they shall possess evidence of their piety proportioned to the degree in which it exists. All the promises of this nature seem to be indefinite, and to indicate that Christians shall enjoy some evidence of this nature, rather than to point out the degree in which it shall be enjoyed. The Spirit testifies with their spirits in a degree and manner accordant with his pleasure that they are children of God. It is indeed said that if any man will do his will, he shall know the doctrine, whether it be of God. But the word know in this case plainly means no other than that he shall have a strong and satisfying persuasion, for it cannot be said that knowledge in the proper sense is ever attainable with regard to the subject. And this strong persuasion that the Bible is the word of God may exist without any satisfactory evidence that we are his children. Thirdly, there seems to be a plain and important reason why most Christians should be left in some degree of uncertainty concerning this subject. In all the earlier stages of their piety, and in all other cases, in which it is not eminently vigorous, they would be prone if they possessed high consolatory evidence, especially if they possessed full assurance of their renovation, imperfect as they then always are, to be at ease, to settle quietly down in that imperfect state, and in this manner to come far short of those religious attainments which now they actually make, and perhaps finally to fall away. As the case now is, their fears serve to quicken them no less in their hopes, and by the influence of both, they continue to advance in holiness to the end of life. Fourthly, the fact is, unquestionably, as I have stated it, and it cannot be rationally denied to be a part of the scriptural providence of God. Application First, from these observations we learn the necessity of performing daily and carefully the duty of self-examination. If such difficulties attend this duty, we are bound to exercise proportionally greater care and exactness in performing it. Secondly, we are taught to rest our hopes on the general tenor of our dispositions and conduct, and not on particular views, affections, or actions. These may be counterfeited, but to counterfeit the whole tenor of a life seems impossible. I might make a remark here that Timothy Dwight, when he is speaking of resting our hopes on the general tenor of our dispositions and conduct, he means looking at our life at a whole to see whether or not we are Christians, not resting on those things to make us Christians. Ultimately, of course, we rest on the finished work of Christ. We embrace Him. But I go on, thirdly, we perceive the necessity of inquiring particularly whether we increase in holiness. Evangelical holiness increases by its own nature, though irregularly. False religious affections by their nature decline at no very late periods. Fourthly, we learn the necessity of searching the scriptures continually for that evidence which alone is genuine and on which alone we can safely rest. 
in the scriptures only is this evidence to be found. Fifthly, how conspicuous are the wisdom and goodness of God in causing the backslidings and other defects of good men to be recorded for the instruction and consolation of Christians in all succeeding ages. These evils and the distresses and doubts which they occasion attended them. Still, they were truly pious. They may attend us, therefore, while we may, nevertheless, be also subjects of piety. Sixthly, the same wisdom and goodness are still more conspicuous in the manner in which the Psalms are written. The Psalms are chiefly an account of the experimental religion of inspired men. In this account we find that many of them, particularly David, the principal writer, experienced all the doubts, difficulties, and sorrows which are now suffered by good men. It is highly probable that vast multitudes of Christians have by these two means been preserved from final despondence. Seventhly, the subject in its nature furnishes strong though indirect consolation to Christians. When they find doubts and consequent distress concerning their religious character multiplied, they here see that they may be thus multiplied in perfect consistency with the fact that they themselves are Christians and are thus prevented from sinking into despair. Eighthly, we here learn the absolute necessity of betaking ourselves to God in daily prayer for His unerring guidance in this difficult path of duty. If so many embarrassments attend this important employment, the assistance of the Divine Spirit is plainly indispensable to our safety and success. If this assistance be faithfully sought, we know that it will be certainly granted. Ninthly, we here discern the goodness manifested in that indispensable and glorious promise, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. For, cre for creatures struggling with so many difficulties to be left at all would be inconceivably dangerous. To be forsaken would be fatal. But the divine presence in the midst of all these, and even much greater dangers, furnishes complete and final safety to every child of God. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, 
since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.